Good morning again, everyone. We're going to do something a little bit different today. As you know, we were on holidays and I brought a a message from Matthew chapter 13 to um, the church in Ontario where where we were. And I want to bring that same message to you guys this morning. And so if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew 13. We're going to look at verses 44 to 46. And we're going to look at a passage that teaches a foundational truth about Christian discipleship. And this is a truth that has had a profound impact on, on my life. It's a, a, a truth which, if we hold it rightly, should shape every area of our lives. If we get this right, everything else should fall into place. But if we get this wrong, everything in our lives will be adversely affected. Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And just before that, Matthew 6.20, Jesus said to lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. I called this message the disciple's treasure. The disciple's treasure. See, there's a an intimate relationship between our hearts and what we treasure. Jesus says our hearts follow what we treasure. So what we treasure, that's where our heart is going to be. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We're called to keep or to watch our hearts and we're to do so with vigilance and and why are we to do that because from the heart flow the issue of life the the heart is the source that really determines everything about our lives if we could think of life like this there's there's really two aspects to our lives there's the the internal processing and there's external circumstances right there's there's things that happen to us and then there's the way that we think about those things And the internal processing, how we think about the world and how we think about our circumstances in the world, that's what the Bible calls our hearts. And the heart is really the only part of our life that we have any control over. We can't control our external circumstances. We can't control what happens to us in the world. Maybe you've noticed at times in your life that two people go through two very similar situations, but they handle those situations completely differently. And the difference between the way that two people handle similar situations comes down to the internal processing of their hearts, how they think about life. Biblically, the heart is our, our mind, our will, and our emotions, or, or sometimes what we call our affections, what we love. And how we think in our hearts affects how we respond to our circumstances. And how we respond then to our circumstances also affects our lives either positively or negatively. Poor responses to the circumstances of life create problems in our lives. And so how we process life and how we respond to life, that affects our lives for either better or worse. And therefore, the Lord tells us to watch our hearts 
with all vigilance, not just vigilance, but with all vigilance, be careful about what you're thinking. Be careful about what you're wanting. Be careful about what you are feeling in your hearts. Because there's an inseparable connection then between our hearts and our treasure. What we need to do is we need to make sure that our treasure is in the right place. Or that we are treasuring the right things. Again, Matthew 6 and verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so today we're going to examine our treasure. We want to ask ourselves, what is the disciples' treasure? And we're going to do that by looking at a couple of parables, again, in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. And so let's go ahead and read our passage for this morning. Matthew 13, starting at verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. These two parables are very similar. Some call them parallel parable twins and they, they really work together. And each of them makes a comparison to teach us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now the, the parables use elements from everyday life to teach us spiritual truths. The, the Greek word for parable is parabole, and it's a, a compound word made of, of two words. Para means beside or alongside, and, and bale is just literally a throw. And so we've got a, a throw beside. And what Jesus does in the parables is he uses something that we understand, things from the, the natural world, things from everyday life. He uses these things like treasures and fields and pearls and buying and selling and kind of the, the commerce and marketplace things of everyday life. And then he uses those things and he throws them beside as illustrations to teach us spiritual realities. And so parables take the, the natural world and they use those things from the natural world to teach spiritual truths. In this case, truths about the kingdom of heaven. Now, whenever we study the parables, it's good to begin just by understanding the natural aspect of the story first. First, understand the everyday element before trying to jump across to the spiritual meaning. And we're going to try to do that today. And so if any of you are, are note takers this morning, you'll see that we've got three sections in our study today. First, we're going to look at the comparison, the comparison, and we'll just examine the two stories on their own terms and try to find the main part of the story just in the natural realm. Then secondly, we're going to look at what we're going to call the kingdom. So second is the kingdom, and we'll see what the comparison tells us about the kingdom of heaven. And then third, I want to ask 
two questions. Two questions. And those questions are going to help us really drill down into the teaching of the parable and apply the teaching to our lives. And so we're going to see the kingdom, the, sorry, the comparison, the kingdom, and then two questions. And so first of all this morning, let's look at the comparison. The kingdom of heaven is somehow like these stories. Something about the kingdom or some aspect of the kingdom is similar to what we have in these stories. A comparison is being made. And in verse 44, we see treasure hidden in a field. Now in ancient Israel, there were no banks. At least not in the way that we think of banks today. There, there were, there were bankers, there were money changers, money lenders, people who would lend money at interest, but there was really no safe places to store money. Jesus spoke about thieves breaking into steel on more than one occasion. He spoke of thieves that come in the night. And if you were one of the few people in ancient Israel who had some money to spare, it wasn't safe to leave that money in the house. The house was the first place a thief would look for the money. And so what people would do is they would bury their money in the ground. If they had extra money, if they had extra savings, they would bury it in the ground somewhere that was known only to them. For example, in the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, one of the men buried his talent in the ground. Now, a a talent was a a measure, a, a weight of copper or silver or gold. They didn't have paper cash like us. And so they could just bury that, that metal in the ground and it wouldn't, it wouldn't rust. It wouldn't decompose. It would be perfectly safe there. Now, uh, apparently, and we don't know too much about this, but apparently in the, in the ancient Near East, if you were buying or selling a, a field, it would include any treasure that was in that field. And I guess if you were if you were selling a field, you would maybe disclose the removal of the treasure before the, the sale of that field. Now the, the details really aren't so important here about how that actually worked out. The, and that's one of the things that's really important to know about parables is you don't really want to get bogged down into the details. The, the parable is really trying to make one main point. And so we just want to really grab that one main point and not really get distracted with the details. If the details were important, Jesus would have included more about how this worked. But typically, again, the parables want to draw out one main point. And so the man, he, he finds this treasure and he goes in and hit it again. And apparently this treasure doesn't belong to the current owner of the field. And, and if you think about it, it's possible that if people were burying treasures in the field, it's possible that the people could have died and treasures could have been forgotten for generations and then discovered at a, a different time. And so this man found a treasure in a field and the treasure was so great that he joyfully sold all that he had to buy the field and to get the treasure. Now we need to note here the joy of this man. This man is not forced to sell everything. He gladly sold all to acquire the treasure. And obviously then the treasure was worth more than whatever he had. Now the next comparison is is very similar. This time we have a merchant and he is seeking fine pearls. A merchant seeking fine pearls. The merchants were traders who traveled on ships and this merchant was searching for pearls 
Maybe he had a, a buyer lined up, one who wanted high quality pearls. And our merchantly apparently, our, our merchant apparently found such a pearl, one of great value, the text says. One that was extremely precious or one that was valuable. That word there translated great value. That's one word in the Greek, great value. And it pertains to being very high on a monetary scale. Very high on a monetary scale. And again, like we saw in verse 44, he went and sold all that he had and bought that pearl. Now there's some minor differences between the two stories, but really the essentials are the same. In the first parable, the man stumbled on the treasure. In the second, he was seeking what he found. In the first parable, joy was the motive for selling everything. In in the second parable, there's not a motive necessarily given except that he was searching for these pearls of, of value. And the first parable is told very vividly. Now, you might not have noticed it in the English, but, but in the, in the Greek, the parable, and really in the English too, the, the parable uses the present tense. And to highlight the present tense, we might kind of translate it like this. This is a very vivid kind of picture. The, the, the man, it says, let me, let me give you my translation. And from the joy of it, He is going and he is selling all that he is having and he is buying that field. And there's kind of this, this sense that you're entering into the picture and this man is, is selling all and he's having and he's buying that field. And so the present tense brings us right into the scene. It's, and we see the, the man in action. And so there's this vivid picture. There's some kind of excitement happening in verse 44 as this man is, is going and, and finding this treasure and going and selling everything and, and buying the field so that he can have the treasure. In the second parable, it's more a matter of fact, past tense. The man found, he went, he sold, he bought. This man's just kind of doing his business the way that he always had. And both parables have this one thing in common, the finding of something of great value and selling all to acquire that thing. And that's the main point of these stories, the, the, the finding something of great value and selling all to acquire that thing. Now, parables, again, typically teach one thing and one thing only. Now, we don't want to get bogged down. You know, I used to wonder about this, this man who sold everything that he owned to have this pearl and he had nothing but a pearl and I wondered what was this guy going to eat or what's this guy going to going to do with his life isn't he going to have to sell that pearl to to find shelter that, that's really not the point of the story the the main point here the the thing that Jesus is trying to get us to understand is that there's something of great value and when that thing is found they, there's this willingness to sell everything to get that thing And this is the comparison. That's really the, the illustration, the comparison. And now what we want to do is we want to try to discern what spiritual truth this comparison is designed to teach. So we haven't even gotten into at all what this thing is trying to teach us. All we've decided is looked at the main story and, and found that main point, the finding of something of great value and selling all to acquire that thing. And so let's go now from the comparison to number two. Let's go to the kingdom. 
the kingdom. Now, both of these parables start with the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. These stories, the, the whole story tells us something about the kingdom. Something about the kingdom is like finding something of great value and selling all to get it. Before we get to the, the, too far into this, we need to know what the kingdom of heaven is. Now, as we've been kind of working through Matthew verse by verse, and we're up to chapter five now, we kind of already have, have a, I would hope, a fairly good idea about what the kingdom of heaven is. Matthew, time and time again, quotes from the Old Testament showing us that Jesus is the Messiah King who is promised in the Old Testament. Scripture promised a a coming Messiah, a king greater than David who would come and this king would undo the effects of the fall and he would deliver his people from sin and Satan and really restore everything that God had designed at the beginning of creation. This Messiah king would come and bring about justice and righteousness on the earth, restoring God's original purpose for creation. And through the work of this Messiah, all of God's promises to all of God's people through all of time would be fulfilled. Now we could spend a a couple hours again looking at the Old Testament Scriptures on the Kingdom. We don't have time for that this morning. But in in Matthew 13, we see that that something else is happening with the Kingdom. As we kind of come into the beginning of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is just starting now, really for the first time, to teach in parables. And Jesus is beginning to teach then, uh, he's, he's beginning to teach his disciples about a change in the kingdom program. Now even the word change isn't quite the right word because God never changes his plans. God's plans are eternal. God is eternal. And so his plans are from eternity. And so God's plans never change. But starting in Matthew 13, Jesus begins teaching his disciples that the kingdom promised in the Old Testament wouldn't be established until a second coming of Messiah. Until the the Messiah King, until Jesus Christ came again. And Christ would die and He would rise again and later He would return to establish the kingdom. And so in Matthew chapter 11 and 12, the, um, the, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish people reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Matthew 13, He begins to teach His disciples about this, this kind of change in the kingdom program. That, that there would be a time between the first coming and the second coming of Messiah. And, and yet, even though the, the kingdom wasn't going to come immediately, Jesus teaches His disciples that they could still participate in God's kingdom program in this age. Until Jesus Christ comes. And so they and we can participate in the work of the kingdom. That's what Matthew 13 is all about. Now one of the best places to see this about the kingdom is in the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 1-9. And again, the explanation of that parable is in Matthew 8, or 13, verses 18-23. to Now, you know this parable fairly well, I would think. Jesus' disciples are called in that parable to proclaim the message of the kingdom. And that message of the kingdom is basically the gospel message. 
And as they proclaim this gospel message when Jesus is, is gone from them, as they're waiting for Jesus to come back and they're proclaiming the gospel, Jesus teaches his disciples that there's going to be various responses to that gospel as they go out and preach it. And, and the responses would be varied. Some people would reject the message. Some people would receive the message with joy, but they wouldn't endure. Some will, will bear no fruit because the world would choke out the fruit of that gospel message. And so, if you, if you were paying attention there, you see that the world, the devil, and the flesh are gonna retain their influence on many of Jesus' hearers, or many of our hearers as we preach the gospel. But then look at Matthew 13 and verse 23. We see another kind of response. As for what was sown on good soil, This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Some people, by divine grace, will receive the word and bear remarkable fruit. And the amazing fruit, the amazing yields in this text point to the miracle of regeneration. The new birth. There's a, a transformation that happens when, that causes a believer to overcome the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they bear fruit to the glory of God. And that transformation doesn't mean that a believer is perfect in this age, but it, it definitely does mean a significant change in the person's life. And that change is called In Matthew 13 and verse 38, it's called being a son of the kingdom. And so these these sons of the kingdom who receive the gospel message are transformed by divine grace and they bear fruit in this life for the glory of God. Now look at Matthew 13, 38, where this idea of the sons of the kingdom comes in. Jesus here explains another parable and he says, the field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace." In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so at the end of the age, those who did not receive the gospel in a life-changing way, whether they professed Christ or not, those who did not receive the gospel in a life-changing way will go into the fiery furnace of hell. All that cause sin and all lawbreakers, all sinners, all those who haven't been by divine grace, haven't borne fruit for the glory of God, they will be cast into the furnace of fire. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Christ will establish his kingdom and the righteous, those who truly believe the gospel, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And so the kingdom of heaven then is a a future kingdom. It's a, a future thing that Christ will establish when he returns. 
And yet we can participate in that kingdom by preaching the gospel. And as we preach the gospel, some people respond to that gospel, are transformed by grace, they're born again, and then they become sons of that future kingdom. And then as citizens of that future kingdom, they await the establishment of the kingdom when Christ returns. And so that's kind of a a, a brief explanation of the kingdom of heaven from Matthew 13. Now, I want to do it again, and this time I want to take you to another text in Matthew. I want to take you to Matthew 19. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19, and we're going to do that again. Matthew chapter 19, and in verse 16, the, the rich young ruler, as we call him, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Verse 16, behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus responds in effect, if you want to have eternal life by doing some good thing, in, in other words, if you want to have eternal life by works, it requires perfect obedience to the law. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now notice how the man responded in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man was unwilling to forsake his possessions. He was unwilling to leave his earthly comforts for eternal life. He wasn't willing to come follow Jesus Christ. And look how Jesus responds to this man's response in verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now notice there, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. And with this declaration, the disciples are shocked. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, verse 26, I I think is just so cool. Jesus looks at them and they were his disciples. They were those who had eternal life. And he says to them, what you have is impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. You see, only God can accomplish the impossible that sinful men and women would turn from sin and Satan and from the world and to forsake everything and come and follow Jesus Christ. Now, I came to this verse to show you some of these connections here on the kingdom. And so verse 23 again uses that term kingdom of heaven. Verse 24 says kingdom of God. And so from those verses, we can see that the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, they're really synonyms. They're really talking about the same thing. And to enter the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is tied to eternal life. Remember, the original question in the context was, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And so entering the kingdom and having eternal life is also 
as we can see in verse 25, it's also the same as being saved. Another way to say the same thing is to say, come follow me, right? To follow Jesus Christ. To follow Christ is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Look again at at verse 21. Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And so there's all of these synonyms, being saved, eternal life, following Christ. All of these seems to, to talk about the same reality. Now, Peter is, is God on his mind as Jesus is teaching him about this. Peter seems to get stuck at verse 21 with this idea of you will have treasure in heaven. And so in verse 27, Peter asks, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And the Lord replies in verse 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, or literally in the regeneration, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now notice, it says there, when the Son of Man, that is, when the Messiah, when Jesus Christ, when He will sit on His glorious throne, that's going to be in the new world. That's literally, again, in the regeneration. And at that time, the apostles will also sit on twelve thrones, reigning with Christ over Israel and over the world. And it's also at this time that believers will be rewarded and will inherit eternal life. And so let me try to summarize all of this. The the kingdom of heaven is that time when Christ will reign over the world as king. He will destroy the wicked. He will establish his kingdom and he will reign on earth for a thousand years and then into eternity, into forever. And we enter that kingdom now through faith in Jesus Christ. We enter that kingdom now through salvation. But we wait then, as citizens of this kingdom, we wait for the kingdom to be established. We're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are sons of the kingdom waiting for the return of the King. And on that day, we will enter the kingdom and receive a reward for how we served the kingdom and how we served the King while He was away. And we serve the King and we, we seek first His kingdom by proclaiming the message of the kingdom, the gospel. And this kingdom is like finding something of such great value that you will give up everything to have it. Now listen now, being a son of the kingdom is worth more than all that we have. And what I want to do now then, as we kind of have this understanding of the kingdom, I want to kind of drive this home by asking two questions. And so this is number three in our outline. We've had the comparison. We've now seen briefly the kingdom. And now we're going to see number three, two questions. And I want to ask two questions to drive this home. And the first one is this. Why is the kingdom so valuable? Why is the kingdom so valuable. What is it about this kingdom that, that makes it worth so much? 
Like we see in that comparison of the man who's willing to sell everything to gain that treasure or to gain that pearl. The kingdom is like finding a treasure so great that we not only willingly give up all else to have it, but we even give up those things with joy. What is it about the kingdom that would incline somebody to think so highly of it? And I want to give you now five reasons the kingdom is so valuable. Five reasons that the kingdom is so valuable. And the first one, number one, entering the kingdom, or as we saw, the, the, the synonym there would be being saved. That's the salvation of our souls. Okay, so the entering the kingdom or being saved is valuable because it's the salvation of our souls. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked this question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And the answer, of course, is nothing, right? When you think about what, what, what's the profit if you gained the whole world, but you forfeit your soul? And, and the answer is there's no profit there at all. If you gained the whole world, but lost your soul, you have nothing. What is the value of your soul? What is the value of your soul? Isn't, isn't your soul worth more than everything? Without your soul, everything else that you have is going to be worth nothing one day. In exchange for his soul, a wise man would give anything. A, a wise man would give everything in exchange for his soul. Sound reasoning reasons something like this. I would rather save my soul than have anything else. But this is where the depravity of man and the impossibility of being saved apart from divine grace comes in. Because before salvation, our reasoning isn't rational. Our reasoning is anything but sound. We're not wise by nature. Man is bound by his sin. And man by birth and by nature exchanges the glory of the Creator God for the darkness of creation. In exchange for his soul, man will take almost anything except God. And when you think about the world and you think about the people that you know, isn't that true that, that man by nature will exchange almost anything for his soul? In exchange for his soul, man will, 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 will give up his eternal soul for the, the temporary, fleeting, and empty pleasures of sin. Man says this, he says, instead of saying, uh, I would rather save my soul than have anything else, man says, I would rather have anything else instead of my soul. I would, I would rather have the approval of my ungodly friends than save my soul. I would rather continue in my sins than keep my soul. You know, I'll never forget this day when I sat with a man who, who came to our Bible study in California and I, I talked with him for about an hour or so and we just kind of talked about his life and I was really trying to challenge him on where he was at spiritually and what he was pursuing and as our discussion kind of evolved, it, it came to light after about this hour of discussion that, that he would rather have a beer with his friends after work than to have the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a, what a sad day, but this is really the reality of the people in the world. They would rather have the things of the world than have Jesus Christ. And so we see this exchange that man makes. Again, what will it profit if a man gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or Jesus follows that question up with this one. He says, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
Jesus said in Matthew 16.24, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. Now naturally speaking, man says no to the cross and no to losing his life for Jesus' sake. He says yes to the things of this world instead of to Jesus Christ. And so the kingdom, though, is valuable because it is the salvation of our souls. Number two, the kingdom is valuable because it's deliverance from hell. The kingdom is valuable, number two, because it's deliverance from hell. If entering the kingdom is being saved, then we need to ask, saved from what? What are we saved from? And the answer is that salvation is from sin and from the penalty of sin. The, the penalty for sin is death, eternal death, which the Bible calls hell. And sin is rebellion against God. Sin in all its forms is rebellion against God. It's an attempt to overthrow God's rightful rule in our lives. You see, this is God's world. Right now, as we are sitting here, we are breathing God's air in His universe. And rebellion against an infinite God deserves an infinite penalty. And if that infinite penalty of hell seems unfair, then you haven't grasped really the infinite nature of the goodness and majesty of God, or you haven't grasped the exceeding sinfulness of sin, or you haven't grasped both of those realities. Now, hell is a horrible place. But anything less than hell would be an unworthy punishment for sin against so good of a God. Hell is also called the wrath of God. And those who have not escaped God's wrath through Jesus Christ will bear God's wrath forever in hell. And so part of the value of the kingdom is that those who belong to this kingdom, those who are truly saved, will not endure God's wrath. They've been delivered from God's wrath through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus bore the punishment in our place. We deserved wrath, but Jesus took what we deserved on the cross. And when Jesus died on that cross, He paid the penalty for sin for everyone who would ever believe on Him. And because of what Jesus did, we can be justified by faith. When we trust in Christ for salvation, God declares us righteous. And in the same way that Jesus bore the penalty for our sins, we bear the merit of His righteousness. And again, it's simply by faith that God grants us this salvation. Now, true faith then joins us to Christ and turns us from sin to Him. And we'll talk more about that transformation of true faith in a moment. But right now, we're just looking at these, these reasons that the kingdom is valuable. Number one, it saves our soul. Number two, entering this kingdom delivers us from God's judgment. Now, number three... The kingdom is valuable because it does those things eternally. The kingdom and entering the kingdom does those two things for us eternally. Our, our life in this world is temporary and temporal. We might live maybe 80, 90, 100 years, but what is that in light of eternity? You know, Paul understood the value of eternity when he said in 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so to be saved means that you are delivered from judgment forever. And that you have entered into eternal life. Now the fourth reason the kingdom is valuable is because entering the kingdom is equivalent to entering the rewards of eternal life. Entering the kingdom means entering the rewards of eternal life. The joys of heaven are beyond compare. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, the eternal destiny of the citizens of the kingdom is called entering into the joy of our Lord. And those who enter the kingdom there are called blessed of my Father. And the blessings that only God can give are found in that place in heaven, in the eternal kingdom of God. Revelation 21 describes these blessings. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now the one who conquers who will have this heritage in the book of Revelation is the true believer. And so true believers will have this heritage. Now if I had the tongue of an angel, I couldn't explain to you the joys of heaven sufficiently. And so those who enter the kingdom are going to enter into those amazing rewards of eternal life. And these rewards are going to be amazing. This, this dwelling place for us, this, this gift coming down out of heaven for the people of God is going to be amazing. And having every tear wiped from our eyes and no more death and no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain forever is going to be amazing. But the, the fifth reason that the kingdom is so valuable is this, that number five, the, the kingdom includes fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ. And so listen to this. Living forever, not in hell, and living forever in heaven will be wonderful. But the best part, without question, the best part will be living there forever in sweet fellowship with our God. No more pain, streets of gold, gates of precious stones, whatever else there is in that place will be wonderful. But the real joy of heaven is being with our glorious God forever. Jesus said in John 17.3, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so knowing God is eternal life. Fellowship with God, that is eternal life. And the fellowship that we have with God now should be our great joy. But what will it be even then? If our delight is God, then we are enjoying the highest possible object. God Himself is the supreme good. And God has revealed and and will forever continue to reveal Himself to us through Jesus Christ. And so the Gospel then brings us to God. And in the Gospel, by faith, we are united to God. Through Christ, by the Spirit, we are united to God. And so the ultimate treasure then of the kingdom is God Himself. And the Gospel brings us into having this treasure through Jesus Christ. And that treasure is such a, is of such a nature to the one who finds it that he or she for the joy over it will sell all to acquire it. It's not as though we're to, to buy salvation. We can't buy salvation, but true faith Get this, true faith sees Christ and takes Him for the treasure that He is. True faith recognizes Jesus as worthy and gives up all for His sake. Faith says, I will live for Jesus and His glory because He is worth more even than my own life. He is worth more even than our lives. He is a treasure above any other treasure. He is the treasure for which we will give up and gladly give up anything and everything because nothing compares to the joy and the value of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I asked first then, what or why is the kingdom so valuable? And I gave five reasons. The kingdom is valuable because our souls are valuable. The kingdom is valuable because deliverance from hell is valuable. The kingdom is valuable because eternity is valuable. The kingdom is valuable because the rewards of heaven are valuable. And the kingdom is valuable because fellowship with God is valuable. And it's really our chief value and joy that we find in the kingdom is that we have been reconciled to this God so that we can enjoy Him forever. And so that was the first question. The second question that I want to ask you is, do you find it so? Do you find it so? Grace Bible Fellowship, do you find Jesus Christ to be of such a great value, to be of such a great treasure that you gladly forsake everything to live for Him? That you find that your highest joy in this life is is living for the sake of Jesus Christ and glorifying and honoring Him with your lives. Do you find it so? Or another way to ask that would be this. Have you found the treasure that is hidden in the field? Have you found this treasure that is hidden in the field that is so valuable, so great, so awesome that you gladly forsake every other thing in your life in order to have and enjoy that relationship that you have with Jesus Christ? Have you found Jesus Christ to be of such great value that you find losing all to be worth it as long as you have Him? Philippians Chapter 3 and verse 7, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Have your eyes been opened to see Jesus and your relationship with Him as something of surpassing worth? Another way to ask this is to ask, do you love Jesus Christ supremely? I want you to ask yourself that now. Do you love Jesus Christ supremely? Have you found the most valuable thing by divine grace? Brothers and sisters, the the kingdom of heaven is a treasure. And to enter that kingdom, we must receive it as a treasure. Because that's the only way that we'll be able to take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. It doesn't come natural to take up a cross. It doesn't come natural to lose our lives. And naturally, we want to keep our lives. We want to gain our lives. We want to be comfortable and at ease. And so the only way to rightly enter this kingdom and to rightly relate to God through Jesus Christ is if we see Him and receive Him as a treasure, a treasure that is of such great value that those other things, even our own lives, pale in comparison to the value of knowing Him. And so the only way that we'll be able to lose our lives is for His sake is if we take Him and receive Him as a treasure. That's the only way that we can be true disciples of Jesus Christ. And if Christ is our treasure, then our heart will be with Him. If, right? Where our treasure is, there our heart will follow. If Christ is our treasure, our hearts will be with Him. Our, our hearts will be with Christ. Our thoughts will be on the Lord Jesus Christ. And our wills will be directed by Him. And our affections will be for Him. We will, we will treasure Him. We will value Him. We will love Him. We will give up ourselves for His sake. We will love Him and live for Him more and more in this life. Again, this is a, a growing thing in our lives. It's not that we have this perfectly the moment we're saved, but we grow in, in recognizing Him as a treasure and living more and more for His sake. And so Jesus Christ is the disciples' treasure. And if He is your treasure, then you are disciples indeed. But if He is not your treasure, and if you are listening to my voice this morning and you, you hear me saying all of these things about Christ as your treasure and you recognize that He is not your treasure, then I would invite you this morning, come to Jesus Christ. Even you children, listen, listen to my voice. Come to Christ today. Receive Him as the treasure that He is, that He is. Nothing is worth more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing is, is worth more. The, the, the best move you can make in your life is decide to give up everything and, and follow after Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the greatest treasure there is and He is worth forsaking everything else. If only you could have Him. But if you have Him as your treasure, then what a, what a great thing that you have. How blessed are you? And so you should give thanks that God has saved you. He's done something really impossible with men by granting you this salvation, by opening your eyes to see the treasure of Christ. And with that then we come to the Lord's Supper. And it's in this supper that week after week we remember the great treasure of knowing God and of knowing Jesus Christ.
This relationship that we have with God was earned for us by the Lord Jesus Christ who gave His life for us, who laid down His life to pay the penalty for our sin in order that we could be reconciled to God. And we remember that in this Gospel, we have this great treasure of God and of Christ Himself. Jesus gave His body in order that we might know Him. He spilled His blood in order that our sins might be forgiven. And really, the the greatest sin that, that we have in our life is the sin of not recognizing Christ as a treasure, right? What, what greater offense could we give to God than to say that something else is more valuable than Him, that something of this world is, is greater than Him? And so even as we come to this supper, we want to take a moment to examine ourselves and, and, and recognize and confess and repent of anything in our lives that we've been treasuring above Jesus Christ or even forsaking now in this time that we, we meditate on what Christ has done. We, we say to him, Lord, forgive me for treasuring this thing and that thing, for loving this thing and that thing when you are really my great treasure. You're the one that I want to live for. And so we renew our commitment to live for him in this time. The Lord has commanded us really to to do this thing. And so if you are a disciple of Christ, you're invited with us to to join us in this remembrance of Him. But we also have in Scripture a warning that the one who eats this bread and drinks this this blood, that drinks this cup in an unworthy manner is going to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And so we, we warn people, don't take this unless you're a true disciple of Jesus, Jesus Christ, unless you have really come to Him in true saving faith, there's a, a danger for you of judgment. And so again, we confess our sins. We recognize that we are saved by grace, that we're not saved by anything that we have done or by our works, but simply through Christ. And we confess our sins knowing that God will forgive our sins and that He is working in us to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray then before we hand out the elements. Lord, we pray that You would make this time sweet. We thank You for being our great treasure. We thank You for the treasure that we have in the Gospel. We thank You for allowing Your body and this body of Your Son to be broken for us. We thank You for the sacrifice that truly takes away our sins and makes us righteous in Your eyes. We pray that we would enjoy this time, uh, that we would celebrate this, that we would remember what You did for us with joy and with the, the appropriate solemnness as we realize that what You did for us cost us Your very life, Your very blood. We thank You for it. We pray that You would be glorified as we eat and drink. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.